0: Thanks for joining me on the fourth episode of the Chasing the Consumer podcast. I'm your host Annabelle Norman. For those newly joining the conversation, Chasing the Consumer is an interview series where I've hand-selected innovative leaders and marketers within broader consumer and retail to share their incredible journeys and in thought leadership. Today, I have hand-selected an incredible investor within consumer to share thought leadership and some of his insights with us all, Rich Gersten. Rich has spent the last 30 years investing and building marquee consumer brands at top private equity firms, including Tengram Capital Partners, Catterton, North Castle Partners, and now with his own firm, True Beauty Capital. He currently sits on the board of directors for Aquis, Alginist, Cosbar, Lime Crime, Revive, and formerly sat on the board of directors for Laura Geller Beauty, This Works, Active Ride Shop, Nest Fragrances, and Diva Curl. As one of the most prolific investors in beauty, Rich brings unparalleled expertise and industry knowledge to the table, along with key insights that I'm looking forward to sharing live with you all today. So without further ado, I introduce you all to Rich. Rich, thanks for joining us today. Oh,
1: absolutely my pleasure. Looking forward to it.
0: Well, I'm excited to just jump into some questions, if you don't mind, um, and just go ahead and get the conversation rolling. Sure. So you've built a formidable reputation as an investor and thought leader in beauty. Some of your notable successes include exciting marquee brands such as Nest, Laura Geller, and Diva Curl, to name, name a few. What do you feel has given you this edge in helping brands and founders realize their potential and build growth that stands the test of time?
1: Yeah, Annabelle, I think for me, you know, what I decided to do many years ago was specifically focus on investing in the beauty space, right? And I, and I think it's that specialization, that unique sector focus, um, and all the benefits that come from being a focused investor that have helped me identify opportunities and support founders in in growing their brands. Um, you know, the primary benefit of focus obviously is the cumulative knowledge and network you build in your focus area. And that knowledge and network uh, and the ecosystem that I've kind of created in the beauty industry, uh, helps inform me uh, as an investor, right? There's a pattern recognition in the investment business and being able to identify those patterns in terms of what's worked and what hasn't worked and applying them to brands is ultimately, uh, I think results in good investing. Um, And so we try to apply that pattern recognition and and leverage the ecosystem to make the most informed decisions we can. Uh, With that said, with all of that, ultimately what determines the most successful outcome in an investment is the team and the people um, that you hire to help execute the strategy. Um, And if you look at the examples you gave and others in my career where the outcomes have been successful as an investor, it's usually I have an incredible CEO and an incredible team reporting to that CEO. And so the the sector focus allows me to implement uh, pattern recognition and identify opportunities. But ultimately, I think um, hiring the right talent to help you execute those strategies is what makes for the winning formula.
0: Well, I think you have certainly the eye for talent, and I know that you like to stick closely to talent as well, um, like Alana, who's you know stayed within your portfolio over the years. And um, you know, with that, I certainly just have to say I have the utmost respect for you as someone who also does a ton of hiring in her career.
1: One of the things, Annabelle Mossy, one of the things I'm most proud of is the is the the leadership positions that I've helped recruit female executives into. It's become an important part of of what uh, I enjoy doing and giving, you know, incredible female executives an opportunity to lead businesses um, and also fat female founders often that we're backing. And that's what we're trying to do with our tribute ventures fund as well Is really is really lead on the forefront of giving females the opportunities to help build their brands as founders and to gain leadership positions as executives. And and someone like Alana, as you know, has now run two brands for me and my Tengram uh, life and, 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 I love working with a absolute professional like that. She makes me look good in my day job.
0: Well, she's, she's fantastic. And the emphasis on hiring women leaders is phenomenal. And there's a lot of data that says there's strong ROI there as well. And, you know, I think right now in lieu of 2021, you know, we are certainly focusing on, on diversity and finding more women leaders. Um, it's always been, you know, for us as executive search professionals, top of mind and, um, for our clients, you know, we see that even being even more of a priority for them.
1: Yeah, and when it, when it comes to ROI, we, I think they're starting to see that in the investment business as well. My my partner, Christina, True Beauty Ventures, obviously a female. There's a whole uh, set of earlier stage venture capital focused funds that are uh, largely comprised of female investors and I think there's, there's some data that suggests that female investors generate a higher ROI as well. Uh, and so I was smart enough to both hire female executives at my portfolio companies and to bring on a female partner uh, for my fund.
0: That's phenomenal. And I I love hearing that. And, you know, out of curiosity, in lieu of of COVID, we've seen many changes. And some would say it's changed the way in which investors and strategics are looking at brands. I'm curious, how has COVID impacted the lens at which you view the industry and the way in which you intend to invest in the future?
1: You know, at the end of the day, I wouldn't say that much. Um, And when I look at The impacts of COVID on the beauty industry. First, it's a resilient industry. Um, And a lot of the trends that we have seen going on in the beauty industry for the past five or 10 years have have just been accelerated by COVID. Trends like penetration of e-commerce to total shift from uh, department stores to specialty stores, the presence of Amazon uh, in beauty and the traction they're getting. Those are all trends that have been happening for a while that I just think have been accelerated by COVID. And so there should be no surprises there other than the accelerant nature of it. Um, you know, as far as investing right now, we're, we're clearly more focused on hair care, skincare, and wellness oriented brands, because those are categories that have benefited in many respects from COVID, whereas makeup and fragrance as social categories may be less so. And so we've been less focused on categories that have been adversely impacted by COVID and and much more so on categories that have benefited from it. That also goes to distribution channels, right? So brands that are largely reliant on brick and mortar stores for sell-through and department stores at that, uh, less interesting than brands that have more digital savviness and digital penetration. Uh, Although at the same time, I would say, while we like direct-to-consumer businesses, we are still very much believers in omni-channel strategies, and we we like brands that have a strong direct-to-consumer business that's complemented by, you know, some anchor wholesale partner to help them build their awareness and continue to acquire customers. And so in that respect, my investing strategy hasn't changed that much. My category focus in the short term may have changed, but broadly speaking, no change. What is different and an adjustment, I think, for all investors is the lack of human interaction and perhaps the need to make Investments in businesses and with founders that you've never met in person, right? And, and I think that that is lacking. Um, but I think the investment community has learned to adjust to the new world and has gotten comfortable uh, investing in brands where they may have never seen the physical office or, or met the founder in person.
0: And I, too, as a search professional, have had similar challenges, right? I actually um, just talked to a client about doing a virtual tour with them to see their offices, right? Because when I talk to executives, I have to be able to have that firsthand knowledge of what the office and the culture and the setup is like. So, um, you know, we're certainly adjusting, but nothing will ever, I think, stand in place of having an in-person opportunity to, to meet people. And and to see the facilities and things of that nature. So, um, at least there is some comfort there to say the least.
1: Absolutely.
0: And, you know, beauty industry professionals, I feel, are intrigued and invigorated by the PE action in beauty. And many of them would like to develop an expertise in helping to transact a brand to a PE investment firm or to transact a PE backed brand to a larger strategic. Based on your experience in hiring many successful leaders throughout your time as an investor, how would you suggest these executives navigate their career in order to gain this type of exposure and experience?
1: I mean, I think at the end of the day, uh, and I've learned to do it in my career, it's it's a networking game, right? And so you need to put yourself out there and leverage network and meet as many people as you can. I, I, I'm constantly taking calls or historically pre-COVID meetings with executives who are curious about the private equity space and had an interest in it. And uh, they might be in between jobs they might be currently employed and successfully so, but had an intrigue or interest in, in private equity. And so they would reach out and I would take those calls or meetings and help them understand, you know, how we operate and what it, looks like and what makes for a successful executive in in our world which is different but i think it's all about putting yourself out there and meeting as many people and talking to different people if you're you know talk to executives that have similar backgrounds that have made the transition and find out how it's worked for them definitely meet with the different recruiters who are you know i think consistently being hired by folks like ourselves to place talent and then meet with the principals at these private equity firms, the ones that are active, at least in the space and, and understand you know, how they operate. Uh, in my experience, and this is the hard part for me and why we lean on people like you to help us make sure we understand this. theres I've never met in my career a big company executive who doesn't think they can operate in small co-land um, and operating in smaller businesses is vastly different than in larger organizations. It's why I think indie brands take share from large brands is that they can move more nimbly and quickly and eliminate layers and layers of decision-making. And ultimately that's the advantage small brands have over large brands, but they're less resourced in nature, and when someone's coming from a large organization, with lots of resources that they can leverage, they can often struggle. Um, and trying to get an understanding for that, uh, you know, it sounds good to be at a small private equity backed indie brand, but it has pros and cons relative to the comforts of a larger organization. I think it's important for people to try and understand what those differences are and, and make those decisions for themselves.
0: I think that undoubtedly there's not one person that fits all sizes of companies. And a lot of people will come out of like an Estee Lauder or a L'Oreal where they've been there for 10 plus years. And there's, you know, an appeal to joining these nimble private equity backed businesses, but whether or not they're actually qualified, I think is the real question. So um, I, I, I have a rule when I
1: hire CEOs, although all rules are, Ultimately meant to be broken, and I haven't always adhered to it. But in a, in a perfect world for me, when I'm hiring a CEO for one of my brands, I look for big plus one plus CEO. Um, and what does that mean? Someone who's been classically trained at a at a big company, because I don't think there is a better training ground for executives than the than the bigger companies. Um, the plus one meaning some experience at either some founder brand or some indie brand private equity backed or otherwise that shows me that they can be successful in that environment. Uh, and then the plus CEO is preferably someone who's been a leader or a CEO before because learning how to be a CEO is different than being a CMO or a head of sales. Um, it's And usually it's not the functional Expertise or the breadth of experience that's necessary. It's the ability to make decisions quickly with imperfect information. Um, because if you've never been a CEO leader before, you've never been put in that position. Before we've had to make the final decision and be 100% accountable for it. And so, if you're fortunate enough in hiring a CEO for a private equity backed indie brand to find someone that's a big plus one plus CEO, it's not a very big pond you're fishing in, but it's my rule I try to stick by whenever possible. And, And CEO could also mean general manager, could even be a regional general manager, although that's largely sales and commercial related. But I think having, you know, leveraging the experience of where you've seen it work in the past and not is what I try to do. But again, it's not one size fits all to your point. And someone has to give someone the opportunity to be CEO first. And sometimes it is me because um, I can't always find someone that has been.
0: Which you definitely took the chance on Colin Walsh, on Diva Curl, who had been historically at L'Oreal the majority of his career. And it wound up being a great decision.
1: I mean, a phenomenal executive and my partner, Matt at Tengram, led that process and, and developed a relationship with Colin. But what was unique about Colin is he had left L'Oreal and had done some entrepreneurial stuff for a brief bit and was a very entrepreneurial person. And at, at L'Oreal, he was most recently running as the GM of Matrix. And so he, he did have a touch of entrepreneurial experience. He had been a successful leader of a brand and, and, and had all the great attributes and characteristics of being a great leader.
0: From the other side of the spectrum, we've seen beauty brands coming to life in beauty quicker than ever. Perhaps this is due to the low barrier to entry within beauty or due to the increased PE activity and astronomical brand valuations. How do you feel this will impact the industry going forward? And do you feel we'll continue to see the consumer behavior disruption like we've seen in the recent years? past, or do you feel the consumer will circle back to heritage brands that do provide that comfort and consistency?
1: Yeah, it's a lot to unpack there. I would say, and I've been using this expression a lot, I think that uh, the easiest thing to do in beauty is to launch a brand, and the hardest thing to do is to scale a brand, which in some respects, I think, is why there's so many brands launched um and why even more recently so many incubation models have been created right because i do think it's relatively easy in the scheme of things to launch a brand their only barrier to entry is capital and to launch a brand at small scale and a direct to consumer Way it doesn't require that much capital, right? And so uh, the, the the prevalence of a large number of brands and low barriers to entry hasn't changed. Um, I think the phenomenon of indie brands taking share from larger brands hasn't changed either. I don't I don't know that there'll be a. I don't think the heritage brands go away, but I think over time they continue to lose share in increments to smaller upstock brands, which is why. Companies like Estee Lauder and L'Oreal buy brands, right? That's how they achieve their growth objectives and learn different skills and attributes is is through acquisition and using M&A as that tool to drive growth. And so I don't think the phenomenon of indie brands taking share from large legacy brands will go away. It's been happening since I started investing in the beauty space in the early 2000s. So we're we're, we're on a 20 year run almost of indie brands taking share consistently from larger brands. Um, I do think that it's, um, you know, as an investor, we're trying to find brands that have unique, attributes and yes valuations are high but i think that ultimately the market's efficient on valuation and you try to find opportunities where you feel the risk reward trade off is comfortable i think one of the reasons i launched the venture fund and really enjoy looking at those brands is is it, it's much easier to grow a brand from a smaller base than um, a larger more mature Brand, but the perspective and experience we bring to those brands to help them avoid making mistakes and to help them scale more efficiently, leveraging our experience in scaling brands as opposed to launching brands is part of the value we bring. And we always try to encourage uh, brands to, to focus on uh, authentic brand and founder story, uh, productivity of distribution and your product assortment, the importance of registering your trademarks. I mean these are all things that are really important uh, for brands and it's what we try to you know have them focus on as we as we embark on our investment journey.
0: And just out of curiosity, for the founders who are tuning in today, what would be your advice on how to thoughtfully and strategically scale their business and today's climate? And secondly, if you were them, what would be your number one rule to abide by?
1: I think it's very important to set reasonable and plausible growth expectations for your brand. I've seen over the past several years, traditional venture capital firms come in and distort the market uh, relative to valuation uh, by, uh, you know, needing their portfolio companies to grow at rates perhaps that are beyond achievable. Um, And that sets up for disappointment. So when we're looking at brands, we try to align on the growth profile. We stress the importance of profitability. We're not what I call go big or go home investors. We're trying to leverage our experience and, and what's worked for us and where we've see, seen things not work and, and, and apply the discipline to companies at an earlier stage to try and get into them before mistakes are made. Because often mistakes will be made not because the founders aren't smart, it's just that they don't necessarily know. They don't have the years of experience or the pattern recognition that I have. And when you think about some of those mistakes and I, I touched on it, a bit briefly before, you know, don't get it, don't get seduced by the purchase order. Don't open up. Just because the wholesale customer is calling on you doesn't mean you have to open it, right? Be very selective in your distribution, make your distribution narrow and productive, Uh, don't proliferate your line, your product assortment too quickly, uh, puts a lot of pressure on anniversary and new launches and creates inventory implications from a cash perspective. And productivity of your distribution and productivity of your product assortment are so key, especially as a small brand, uh, where it's again, easy to open up a new customer, get the purchase order, easier to create a new product, but not focus on your entire assortment. Those are mistakes we often see get made. I I touched upon trademarks too. I tell every small brand, register your trademark in China before anyone knows it exists because uh, it's a whole cottage industry of, of, uh, local Chinese individuals acquiring trademarks and then trying to sell them back to the brands at a later date for a lot of money. And so these are these are just mistakes I've seen made over and over the years. Um, and I just try and help those founders uh, be aware of them and 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 to try to make sure that they can address them before it's too late. Um, I do think when we look at brands to invest in, you know, we like a balance of a strong direct to consumer business, very important, especially in this environment, being visually and socially savvy is critical. But we like, again, we like omni-channel distribution. We have a pretty thorough investment filter. We apply to every brand we look at, and we're very selective in the brands we invest in. And if we can't check all the boxes on our filter, odds are we're going to pass on that investment.
0: Which I will say that it's not even just China. If you look at GoDaddy, if you go on the site yep. and you decide to put the name in of the URL that you want to have for your company and you don't buy it at that moment, they will buy the rights to that. And then they will negotiate with you for you to buy it. Is. It is. Although
1: future. those those will be less Um, expensive to acquire than your brand trademark in China. But I mean, it's a very sore subject for me because I filed the paperwork to set up True Beauty Capital. um, And then after the paperwork was filed, I went to GoDaddy to uh, secure the truebeautycapital.com domain name and it was taken. Um, And the only reason it was taken, I am sure, is because there's probably a little cottage industry that looks at the organizational filings in Delaware and, and people see those entities being formed, and for nominal dollars, they acquire that domain name. Um, my website right now is truebeautycap.com, um, and that's because capital wasn't available. It, I'm sure it will be at some point, and it's not critical for me to own that domain, but it's a great example and, a, and one that's you know sensitive to me. When I created the entities for True Beauty Ventures and all those organizational documents, I went to GoDaddy and secured the domain name before I filed The paperwork. And I guess that's part of my pitch, right? I learned from that one mistake and didn't make it the second time. I only knew about it because it was a personal uh, experience I had. So yes, protecting your intellectual property in every respect is very important to a consumer branded business.
0: So last but not least, I'm aware you've made a handful of investments in beauty this last year with the launch of your new firm, True Beauty Capital, including Aquas and K18. Can you tell us about some of their hero products and what items we should have in our Amazon and/or other retailer cards?
1: Yeah, that that investment was so interesting for us because the Aquas brand had been around for a long time and, and was a little bit larger than uh, I think a typical business might be for our True Beauty Ventures platform. Um, and it's got a kind of hero cult following. It's a towel and turban that dries your hair 50% faster. And, and most consumers may not realize that there are damaging effects to hair the longer it's, it's in that wet state. Um, and so there's a convenience benefit from a time perspective, but there's also a hair health benefit in terms of of drying your hair faster. Um, And that that product, which comprises most of the Aquas brand, uh, has continued to experience great growth throughout 2020 and and, and can be found in lots of different points of distribution around the world now. It's a very iconic product. What was more interesting to us, perhaps, in that investment was the launch of the K-18 branded product line, which was a new launch that really just occurred at the end of 2020. And uh, there, we think we have a breakthrough uh, technology that that dam- that repairs damaged hair, damage caused by color treated or, or keratin straightening, but the ability to return the hair almost to a virgin state in terms of, again, healthy hair fast um, is what K18 promises. And it's got patented technology that's proven to work. And uh, it's hero product is a hair mask. It'll initially be launched in salons, but then will migrate over to direct to consumer channels and ultimately into specialty retail. But it's um, it's an amazing product that, that heals damaged hair. Uh, and, and most females, especially those who have colored their hair have caused a lot of damage over time. And uh, there's really a breakthrough product and for us represented the breakout potential in a business that we look for when we invest in brands through True Beauty Ventures. And the initial uh, success of the launch makes us incredibly excited about the prospects of that business.
0: Well, as a highlighted brunette, I cannot wait to get my hands on that product. So I will definitely be you know, purchasing that right after this, you know, conversation. So Rich, I cannot thank you enough for your time. And I hope to have the opportunity to have you back on in the near future. And I'm very excited for what the future holds for true beauty. And if it's indicative of whatever you had done, you know, with 10 gram, I'm sure that the sky will be the limit.
1: Annabelle, thanks so much for having me. Love, love sharing the stories and look forward to uh, continuing to participate in these going forward.
0: Thanks, Rich.